0: What? What? Um, Steampunk Link. What are What are you doing?
1: Uh, I'm doing a, a, a spooky Halloween thing. Emmy Zero. That you know, it's it's gotta get in the spirit for
0: Halloween 2020. That's that's what you're doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to do like a uh-huh. 2020
0: Halloween sort of. You know, I, I hate to break it to you, buddy, but we actually missed that. That was last week. Oh, we didn't do anything for Halloween, huh? No, we didn't, unfortunately. And now that voice that you just did, um, we are going to have to pretend that that is for Reginald the turkey man for Thanksgiving. So I think he locked us into that, which, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Maybe it'll be fine. Maybe we can do something. Because like, I've,
1: I've got a good idea for Reginald the turkey man. I got a great turkey voice for that. Okay, maybe that was... Reginald, the turkey man's monster that I was doing the voice for. Oh, good! Yeah, there we go. Solved it. That's good. I'm. I'm really. It's all canon now. We're obligated at this point. (laughs) That's right. That's how it works. You're just, you're locked in once you make a choice like that, so. Yes, because, you know, we're, we're crafting such a deep lore around... That's right. ...the podcast and everything. Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> folks, um, welcome to Cinescapades. Uh We're chronologically talking about every single Super Nintendo game. You, you know, you know what we do. Uh, <laughs> unless this is your first time, in which case, uh,
0: welcome. And where have you been? Well, you're never getting out now, so pull up a chair. Let's talk about some weird games.
1: Yeah, we got some kind of strange ones today. Strange in that some of them just kind of deal with weird things. Some of them are weird kind of games. Some of them are weird that they even bothered putting it on the Super Nintendo in the first place. I will say, though, last time we were talking February games, we were getting ready for some, some mm-hmm. real bad ones, and we were pleasantly surprised that everything was all right. I kind of feel like we're continuing that theme here in February of 93.
0: I think we are. Um, I'm pleased to say that. These ones ended up being, once again, a pretty nice surprise in some ways. So
1: On today's show, we've got Harley's Humongous Adventure. We have got Shanghai 2 Dragon's Eye. And we're going to be talking about Sim Earth and not Hit the Ice, because Hit the Ice is a hockey game. And as we have mentioned earlier, we have a new way of dealing with sports games that, um, honestly, I am wondering if we should just do that with Koei games as well at this point. But, <laughs> well, uh, we'll think about it um (laughs) but we're we're gonna save hit the ice for a snescapades sports desk episode which i think we're gonna be doing next week in any case uh do we want to shrink ourselves down with our ill-conceived shrink ray and yeah
0: let's get small
1: So this is Harley's Humongous Adventure. So right out of the gate, I just want to say we've sort of been dreading this one because we had a YouTube show where we were trying to do the same sort of thing, but we were not going chronologically. We covered Harley's Humongous Adventure at some point. We were not terribly impressed with that game. In fact, we kind of hated it, and I think it ended up being one of the worst reviewed games we had
0: on that show. Yeah.
1: As we've given it another look, I'm way more up on this game than I was back then.
0: Yeah, uh, same here, and we'll talk about why in just a little bit. Do you want to talk, before we get into that, a little bit about the history of this game? I know there's not actually probably a ton about this one in particular, but give us the lowdown. So
1: we've already talked about high-tech expressions a little bit ago, so we're going to talk about the developer of this game, Visual Concepts. Visual Concepts was founded in Nevada, California by Scott Patterson and the Thomas brothers, Jeff and Greg. Their earliest games, Gnarly Golf and the Great Western Shootout, were made for the Apple II GS, which was the most powerful of the Apple II line. Visual concepts would soon focus primarily on home consoles, releasing their first console game in 1990, which would be the NES conversion of the arcade game Trog, which was uh, about little dinosaurs picking up, dinosaur eggs and having to avoid the evil cavemen that want to eat them in kind of a role
0: reversal sort of game because usually you'd, you'd think the opposite right? right? Yeah you would but no the dinosaurs they're you in this game they're the people that you want to protect you know now that you mention it kind of a bit of a similar visual style to some stuff we got going on in Harley here, here isn't it?
1: Yeah and there's a reason for that which I will get to in just a moment actually. Visual concepts would go on to work for a number of different publishers such as Virgin, DT EMC, Interplay, and would work on some of EA's sports titles, work that would make them very attractive to Sega in the late 90s as they were gearing up to release what would be their final home console, the Sega Dreamcast. EA, the biggest name in sports, had declined to bring their popular franchises to the system, and Sega decided that the next best thing would be to acquire one of the studios that helped them make those sports games in the first place. And in 1999, a deal was struck And Visual Concepts would officially become a Sega brand, with Greg Thomas, then president of Visual Concepts, taking on the role of vice president of product development for Sega of America. They would develop their 2K series of sports titles for the Dreamcast, and once Sega got out of the console market to become a publisher on other platforms the 2K games would appear on other consoles as well. After being purchased by Sega, they would only rarely deviate from sports to make oddities like the Floygen Brothers on Dreamcast and Jam & Earl 3 for Xbox. Oh boy. In 2005, the studio was sold to Take-Two Interactive where the 2K brand would continue and continue it did. In a happier ending than we typically get on these segments, the studio and their 2K brand still survive to this end. Day.
0: You know, it's so weird. I've, because I don't really play modern sports games, but I absolutely see every year when these new 2K games come out, like, oh yeah, developed by Visual Concepts. You know, I'm reading reviews of it and stuff. I've never in my life connected that developer named Visual Concepts to these people who were involved in all these retro games that we cover on this show. Like, it just never crossed my mind that those two things were the same. Hinting at what you were talking about earlier,
1: Um, in their early days, before they started sticking to sports, they seemed to develop a lot of games that were rendered in clay. They worked on Claymates and Clayfighter, games that we'll talk about in the future with Interplay. And even though they didn't work on the clay-modeled original arcade game, they did help port trog to the NES. You can see a little bit of that in the NES version, but obviously given the NES's resolution, a lot of that kind of gets lost. But So this game that we're talking about, Harley's Humongous Adventure, not published by Interplay, but by High Tech Expressions, also features characters rendered in clay, uh, the protagonist and most, if not all, of the enemies. And you know, I'm not sure if this is just a coincidence or if it was like the studio's idea to try and do a lot of this clay animated sprite work in their games, but I think it's interesting that we see a lot of these different games that use that style... All sort of coming into the domain of visual concepts in different ways. Just a little oddity that I picked up on.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a pretty striking look. Like, I think that all of these games that they did in this style do benefit from it. And I don't really know that pretty much anybody else was doing the claymation look for things at this time.
1: Harley's Humongous Adventure is definitely a game that benefits a lot from this style, because a lot of the other elements of this game, like the backgrounds, are all pretty unimpressive the, the clay animation really boosts the production and the look of this game and without it I, I think this would have been uh, not nearly as impressive looking
0: humongous Adventure. You're a guy, you're I guess he's a scientist that has been shrunk by his own shrink ray that he invented, and is now tiny inside his house. And there are I I guess monsters, I guess they're not really just like big bugs or anything, but there's a lot of things out there that want to kill him. This game is a side-scrolling platformer. I'm not gonna really say it's a shooter, but it's almost a shooter. You do have projectiles that are limited in number. There's a bunch of different ones that you can get. Nails and balls and firecrackers. And you are really just trying to make your way from one end of a level to another. There's a lot of different kind of setups. Some levels are more vertical than others. Some of them have swimming. There's uh, occasional vehicle sections. And it's all, I think, pretty fun. Like, I think that the controls are responsive. The levels do appear to be designed around what those controls can. And do which is nice yeah in general i had a, a surprisingly good time playing this
1: yeah i did too i was really shocked at how much i started enjoying this game once i started getting into it the game opens with a uh, kind of an interesting idea a level that is just timed and the entire objective is just to collect as many things as you can within that time limit and a sort of just try out the controls. You can kind of test out things. You can use your jetpack to get a few collectibles at the top of the screen, but it's not necessary to do that. This game will do a lot of that, where Harley does have a jetpack, and if you collect fuel for that jetpack in a level, you can use it to fly for a brief amount of time, you know, until that fuel burns out. And uh, the game rarely ever requires you to do that. At least I, I didn't run into a point in which I was required to do that, with one exception that I think was accidental that I'll talk about in a little bit. I like the concept of this first level where it's just all about kind of giving the player a playground to mess around with and get adjusted to the controls before the real game starts. I, I think that's a, an inspired idea.
0: Yeah, I thought that was really neat, definitely. Uh, I really wish more games would do that, honestly.
1: We saw a little bit of that with the uh, Skulljagger game where they just give you that bonus mode where you just kind of have a playground to test out the different
0: bubble gums. In that case, it felt like a last resort thing because the controls were kind of confusing and they wanted to give you a way to play with some of those ahead of time. Here, there's nothing really confusing about the controls, but there are some things that are specific to them that I think it, it is better to kind of have a handle on before the game starts really asking much of you. So I'm glad that they did what they did here. The only thing I
1: could say is that I wish there were a few enemies in there just to give you a reason to play around with the weapons, especially since you can fire up, which is really necessary because a lot of the enemies fly and are going to be attacking you from above. Like you were saying, the game feels very built around what Harley's movement capabilities are. And and yeah, and I think that applies to the way the enemies attack you as well. You're going to be attacked from a lot of different angles, but you can throw your weapons in multiple directions. You can't throw them diagonally, but you can throw them straight up. You can throw them across and you can also duck and kind of throw them as well, which is useful in some areas where the ground sort of slopes and sometimes you just need to duck to sort of get your weapon to target an enemy that's just a little bit lower than you are. can't aim down, unfortunately, which was the one thing I felt like I really could have used that was not available to me. But for the most part, I felt very capable of handling pretty much anything the game was throwing at me because the controls felt pretty good. His jump's a little bit floaty, but not to the point that it it made the game hard to play.
0: It's a solidly built game, and I, I actually quite like the level design for the most part. I do think that some of the individual gimmicks the levels come up with can be hit or miss, but, you know, in general, I kind of like the the sort of pacing for how the stages are laid out.
1: I like how the stages, it's not just a linear thing where you're going from left to right. It's also, hey, you're going to need to climb up a thing and, and maybe... Double back and... Yeah, exactly. I like all the little hidden areas. There's a lot of nooks and crannies in levels that are usually squirreling away something. The game uses a pretty good system of checkpointing where when you ring a, one of those little hand bells. Like a hotel front desk bell. Yeah, exactly. Those glie really operate as your checkpoints. So whenever you activate one, uh, that's where you start from if you die in the level. One issue I had, I actually did manage to softlock myself in this game because I fell down in an area in I think like the third or fourth level that I could not get up from, and I did not have any fuel in my jackpack to just fly out. That felt like an oversight on the part of the game developers, and because the levels outside of that first one are not timed, I couldn't even do anything to sort of suicide my character to restart. I actually had to restart the entire game to move forward.
0: That's not great. Uh, unfortunately, there are places in this where I feel like they just didn't think some stuff through with regards to the level design. Like, I think that a level that both you and I got pretty hung up on was the water level that this game has where you're basically required to swim through a, a network of pipes under a like a bathtub. The way this is laid out is like you can see what I took to be like the exit from pretty early on. And this game does require when you're underwater, it does require you to get air from these little icons. And you can definitely make it all the way through this thing to, you know, that sort of end point without uh, running out of air, but you can't really make it back up unless you sort of plan for it. You know, don't get some of the air power-ups so that there's still some left for you on the way back. And you do need to get back out. The game does not tell you this, but that thing you can see from early on is not an exit. It's I guess it's like a switch that you need to hit before going back to the surface of the water. Uh, you get a, a power-up that allows you to climb out of the bathtub. So it's it's not very clear at all what exactly any of this stuff is or how to use it. So it, it is pretty easy to just sort of reach this point and be like, I have no idea what to do now.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that particular level was pretty ill-conceived. I don't know if there's any others like it because I I never got past that point. I also just want to point out there's a stage early on where you have to control a tank and shoot these balls that are coming at you and also shoot down like Lego looking bricks that are blocking your path. That level was basically the thing that caused us to write this game off in the very beginning when we did this back for the YouTube show. I still don't think it's a very well-designed level. I don't think that the tank... Adds a lot. I think it's just a, a lot more frustrating, and, and it's you know it's an auto scrolling level, which I don't think typically those are very fun. Mm-hmm. But you know it wasn't too difficult. You know after giving it another go, but it, it could have like the the Battletoads Turbo Tunnel effect on some folks, where you encounter this so early on, and it's kind of a roadblock because it's not very fun and it's much more frustrating than just the normal flow of the game
0: i think this game's level design is kind of inconsistent because outside of those those levels like really a lot of the stuff in this game feels pretty good it is kind of frustrating that it doesn't feel like there's been any attempt to do like kind of one more pass over some of these levels and and sort of iron out some of the frustrations in them but i do think there's good ideas here it feels maybe like an earlier draft of a more complete
1: game that we never got like a lot of the backgrounds and everything like do not have nearly as much personality or uh or or just look nearly as good as the character sprites themselves as we mentioned before Uh, especially some of the bosses some of those bosses are really gnarly looking
0: (laughs) i love them i love that horrible giant rat thing Uh, It's really good. Yeah, it's ugly as
1: sin, but in a really cool stylized way. Like you can tell somebody worked very hard to make that clay monster rat very ugly. And I appreciate that.
0: I feel like it's going to try to sell me a Quiznos sandwich.
1: Yeah, so I'm looking at the list here. So I'm looking for another platformer that's maybe kind of middling but not terrible. You know, like, okay, like um, Spider-Man and the X-Men is one that I go to a lot, which I, I think maybe I've been generous to just because I've got nostalgia for that one in particular. But I will say, I think after having played Harley's Humongous Adventure again... I might put this above that game.
0: Even though it's it's got some inconsistencies, it is more consistent than that one. And, like, I think that things like that water level that we talked about, I could see myself getting through that and having a good time you know with later levels in a way that i can't really see with some of the worst parts of spider-man the x-men think that that there are things like the cyclops levels in spider-man the x-men that i think are just real like kind of black marks on that game
1: yeah i would say those drag down that game way worse
0: than the the bathtub or the tank levels and harley's drag down that one i feel good about this being sort of our baseline so i i think we're both kind of Thinking this goes this this goes up from here, right? I think so. I'm trying to see how
1: much further up this one might go because I'm, I'm looking at like something that's up even further, like Pushover, maybe at 48. But I, I don't know if, if maybe Pushover is the ceiling for this.
0: Even though I had my issues with Pushover, I think that just because of the the uniqueness of that one, I would give it the edge over this pretty pretty handily
1: I'm kind of looking at something like uh, maybe in the middle ish of this range like Krusty's Super Funhouse at 59 what do you how do you feel about that match- matchup
0: part of me wants to say that I think Krusty's Super Funhouse is maybe a better game than this one but at the same time I think that when I was having fun with Harley, I was probably having a bit more fun with it than I generally tended to have with Krusty's Super Fun House. But like like we've been talking about though, I don't think there's any any levels of Krusty's Super Fun House where the the basic tenets of its game design cause it to to stumble over itself.
1: So going down from Krusty's Super Fun House, we've got Firepower Two Thousand at number sixty. I'm not sure I would put this below that.
0: I don't think I would either. I think Firepower 2000... um, I do like it, but I do think that as a whole... I would probably rather go back to Harley's Humongous Adventure than Firepower two thousand.
1: It's a little bit tough because I could almost see myself wanting to put this below Musia because I, I like Musia's visual design so much. I think that we got hung up on the controls in a way that honestly I I think if we had more time with that game, we would find that maybe it's like a Castlevania where you just sort of have to get used to the flow of that game.
0: That's probably what we would end up feeling with that.
1: Yeah. But you know, given just the nature of this show you know, we we do only give ourselves a week because, you know, otherwise we'll just never get through this list. So, right, yeah. Um, you know, so it's just kind of the, the, the conceit of the podcast. It's just like, hey, we really do only play a lot of these Briefly.
0: Maybe someday we'll have a guest on that's that's a big fan of Musia and really wants us to take another look at it. To
1: bring things back to Harley, I think we're just going to make this our new number 60 and put it between Krusty Super House and Firepower 2000.
0: That sounds good to me.
1: So congratulations, Harley's Humongous Adventure, a game that was almost certainly in our bottom 25 <laughs> somewhere in our old show. Now in the,
0: now our number 60 game. It's, it's well in the, the top. Fifty percent of our list. It really does go to show you that the context in which you play these games in really can make a difference. Because I think that one of the issues with the way that we played this game in in the the YouTube version of the show is that we had already played pretty recently a bunch of the kind of bona fide canonical classics of the Super Nintendo's library at that point. This time, we haven't been cherry-picking things. We've been playing everything. And turns out, when you do that, you know, you can really start to respect when people get something right when you've seen a lot of people not get it nearly as close to being being what you'd want. All right, so congratulations to Harley. And with that, let's move on
1: to Shanghai 2.0. Dragon's Eye.
0: Which is such a weird name for this game, considering what it is.
1: So this is essentially Mahjong Solitaire, which I think a lot of people over here in the West specifically will just know as Mahjong, the computer game consisting of tile matching and and needing to remove tiles to access other tiles. That is what this is, and that, you know, it's got a few other modes. We'll get into it, but before we do, this game comes to us courtesy of Activision and Hot B. Activision is one of the first and longest lasting third-party developers in the video game industry, so we'll likely have plenty of time to dig into the history of that company many times over, and I will save it for when we... Don't have a lot of other things to talk about, but I am going to talk about Hot B. Uh, they are a Japanese company founded in 1983. According to Giant Bomb's wiki, they started out as an advertising agency before the video game boom in Japan caused them to narrow their focus, ultimately leading the company into the video game industry. Uh, Sadly, I cannot back this up with any other materials right now, as this company does not have a
0: Wikipedia page at all. Really? Let alone one
1: cited with sources.
0: Hot B? That's weird. I would think that, like, I've heard of Hot B. I'm kind of surprised that there's no Wikipedia page for them. Yeah. So their first game, uh, which uh, Hot B developed
1: and published themselves, was the Japan-only RPG In the Psychic City, which released on the FM7 and on PC88. Computers. Uh, they published ports of several games for Taito on the MSX, like The Fairyland Story and Cloud Master. They also published several fishing games during the NES era, including The Black Bass, developed by Another Limited, and their own in-house developed, The Blue Marlin. Hot B wouldn't survive long enough to see 1994, and I can't say that there is any one thing that I can point to as the cause of their demise. In 1993, they published two games that were made in-house. One was Schmeister Robo, a fighting game featuring mechs, and the other, which is not listed on Moby Games at all, oddly enough, is called Ancient Magic Bazoe Maho Sekai. According to Giant Bomb, again, that game, Ancient Magic, was released a day before the company declared bankruptcy. Uh, later that year, some former employees of Hotbee formed the company Starfish, which managed to get back a lot of Hot B's back catalog. Starfish themselves have an interesting gamography that differs uh, between Giant Bomb and Moby Games. Moby Games lists things like the 1998 Game Boy Mortal Kombat compilation, which contains, uh, or contains with a K because Mortal Kombat, the Game Boy versions of Mortal Kombat's 1 and 2, as if anybody wanted those again
0: i was gonna say like that seems like a worse deal than just getting one of those because then you have two bad games giant bombs site lists 2010's chucky e. cheese game
1: room for ds as being their handiwork it seems like most of their output from the last decade or so has uh, released only in asian markets Uh, They do still have a functioning website, so I guess they're doing fine. Good for them. Yeah. Again, you know, I guess slightly happier endings than we tend to get on the show when it comes to the history of these companies. So let's talk about Shanghai 2. So like I said before, this is Mahjong Solitaire, which is a game played using Mahjong tiles. Actual Mahjong is a four-player game in which players take turns drawing tiles from a community pool and discarding ones they don't need that then any other player can pick up and use. The objective is to be the first player to get a, a number of combinations that can create a winning hand. So it's a little bit like, a you know, your average card game, except instead of a... 52 card deck, we're dealing with a 144 pool of tiles.
0: Yeah, um, I've always found real Mahjong extremely intimidating. People have tried to teach me how to play it before, and I, I've never really made the effort to, to do that. So when I loaded up this game, this game just really has like a title screen. And then once you go through that, it just drops you right into uh, Mahjong Solitaire without any real explanation of, like, what you're supposed to do in the game itself. And I was pretty intimidated because I thought this would be more like actual Mahjong, but it's not. It's a very simple game, in fact. Though it's trickier than it would sound on paper. Basically,
1: you have the 144 tiles arranged in some sort of configuration. The most common one is known as the turtle. You can play any tile that is not surrounded by other tiles on its left and right. So if it has at least one of those spaces free, it is available to be played. You also can't play any tile that is underneath another one, and you can't see those tiles either, which kind of gets into my big problem with Shanghai Solitaire or Mahjong Solitaire as a game. I feel like this is a game that is poorly conceived. Now I understand it's a it's a pretty relaxing game. I do not know what the math is on this. I do not know if every board is completable without shuffling the tiles. I do know that it is very easy to get into situations where you know you've cleared a pair of tiles and then you see the other pair of those same tiles right next to each other, meaning Unless you can clear the entire board and get down to those two, you're not going to be able to clear them. I guess the idea is that you're supposed to just keep undoing moves until you get to a point before you got into that unwinnable state, but that just seems to require way more memorization of tile placements than I am capable of. Because you cannot see a good number of the tiles until you clear tiles off of them, I don't know how you're supposed to just intuit how to clear a board, or if a board is even uh, possible to clear at all. It feels very, very luck-based and that you're almost always going to run into a situation where you're either going to need to shuffle the tiles, which seems to sort of eliminate any sort of strategy from the game at all, or just give up and start over.
0: Right, and I mean, maybe that is sort of the appeal of this, is it's like there's elements of it that are kind of out of your hands, so you go as far as you can with it, and then you're like... Okay, I think that's it. You know, I guess I need to start over. I I don't know. I guess it just depends on, like, the mindset that you're coming at this with. I found it fairly relaxing, but also just extremely simple, um, especially if you do make use of um, the shuffle feature, which essentially just randomly redistributes all the tiles, but in the exact same pattern as the board was before you hit the button. So eventually any board is presumably completable with that, but also there's no real challenge to that either. It's interesting to play something like this on a Super Nintendo cartridge instead of in like a free Flash game or something, honestly, which is more where I would expect to find something like this these days. So I've got
1: three big problems with this game. One of them is that I just don't personally think Shanghai Solitaire is a good game. The second one is exactly that, that like you're listening to this presumably on some kind of device that... You could be playing Shanghai Solitaire for free right now on that device, I guarantee. I mean, unless you've downloaded this and put it on a bespoke MP3 player, I don't see any reason to go back to this version of the game at all, given that you are probably literally right now three clicks and maybe a a Google search away from playing this game absolutely for free probably with more features than the Super Nintendo version has.
0: I find it kind of hard to recommend this particular game, just, just because of that, honestly. Like, there's nothing particularly wrong with it, it's just not particularly special for what it is. There's a little bit of showmanship here, you know, some of the tiles uh, have animations that play when you get rid of them, which I honestly don't think makes the game better, because it kind of slows everything down. Yeah, as far as Shanghai Solitaire goes, I think you can probably play a better version of this for free right now very easily. Uh, In fact my partner last night was watching me play this and she just sort of idly like found some version of this on a website and started playing it. Cause she was like, Oh, that, that looks like some fun. And it's like, yeah, she did that in like a minute.
1: And I will say, you know, to this game's credit, it's got a lot of features. You can turn off those animations. I believe a lot of different board layouts other than just the turtle that is sort of the default. There's also a lot of different tile sets. A lot of the other tile sets are like vegetables and sports icons and things like that. That leads me to my third big problem with this game is the limitations of the Super Nintendo. The resolution that this game is capable of makes the default tile set kind of hard to read, especially if you are not accustomed to reading a lot of Chinese-Japanese characters. Most of the tiles in Mahjong contain like, uh, the, the numbers 1 through 10 written in kanji characters. And they might look similar to each other if you're not used to seeing those. So we haven't actually talked about
0: the Dragon's Eye mode that's in this game. Dragon's Eye is another game that is weirdly kind of buried in the menus here. I don't get why that's the way it is here. I don't get why there's not some kind of over overall menu at like the title screen that lets you select one of these two modes, but it is a completely different two player game. Uh, it also uses the Mahjong tiles. It also kind of uses a, a version of the Mahjong solitaire setup, but it's essentially it's, I found this kind of interesting. Actually, I don't, for reasons we'll get into, I don't really think it works that well in a video game here. But yeah, it's it's essentially a game where two people are playing against each other, and one person is trying to fill the board. I, I guess it's kind of shaped like an uppercase I. The other person is trying to remove tiles from the board, essentially.
1: So I I would say, like, the Dragon's Eye mode is maybe, like, the one saving grace of this package, but I still didn't find it all that fun. Uh, I played as the slayer who's trying to remove tiles from the board, and I just got completely trounced. And again, I just think it all comes down to luck, essentially, if, if I get the right tiles to hopefully configure the board in my favor, because once the computer can start, you know, really blocking tiles off. And tiles that get blocked off also get flipped, so I don't even get to see them anymore and have to remember what they were, which I think is an unnecessary component to the game, honestly. But yeah, I feel like you're at a severe disadvantage, and and only in certain circumstances, mostly based on luck, are you ever going to win if you're playing as... The Slayer. Now, I'm sure somebody who knows this game better than I do or knows math better than I do can you know tell me why I'm wrong and why I'm just doing it all wrong. And, and maybe they're right. I don't know. But yeah, it, it just seemed... It just just a fool's errand to try and play as the slayer. I,
0: I think that the design of this game is kind of neat because it's essentially the the slayer, even though they're trying to remove pieces from the board by making matches like you would in in Shanghai, um, they do also still have to contribute to the board they still have to put a new tile on the board each each round and that's kind of neat because it means that they're kind of having to build the trap that they themselves are, are trying to dissolve so actually what's happening there is you have to have
1: one space open when uh, before you can end your turn as the slayer so if you can't do that by matching a tile in your hand with a tile that's on the board you have to place one of your tiles on the board okay got it but, but if you can create a match, then you can actually get away with not having to do that. It's just that, again, more often than not, you're going to have to place one because it's all based on luck.
0: Right, yeah. So I think that aspect of it, it's kind of a neat game in, in that respect. But yeah, I never beat the the computer-controlled Dragon Master in this game. I think this would be more fun if you were playing against a human opponent, but that gets us into kind of the same problem that Clue had, where this is a game that does sort of require each player to keep their hand of tiles to themselves um, and not show what they've got to the other player. And when both of you are having a look at a TV screen, it doesn't work that well unless you specifically have everybody else turn away when it's not their turn. This game does give you the option to flip your tiles over so they're not visible, which I think is their concession for that, basically. But... I just, I feel like this is a game that's, that aspect of it makes it so awkward to play with another person that it would probably be better to just play this in real life with real Mahjong tiles.
1: You know, this game, the presentation is fine. I think the music loops are very short for what this is. It's really grating, yeah. Each tile set has its own music, but yeah, I think the music loops way too quickly for the amount of time you're going to have to spend listening to it for it to Work for this. I think visually it's fine. You know, I think they do some good things with the visuals, though, again, I think that the resolution of the SNES screen is going to be a problem for certain tile sets. I- Including the default one.
0: And, and in fact, it's such a problem that in the instruction manual for this game, which I've got to say is only a little bit racist. Oh, no. <laughs> there's like a tips and tricks section where it's it's telling you basically how to troubleshoot various issues you might have playing this game. And one of them is like, I'm not able to click on a tile that matches the one that, that I've already got selected. And it's like, look closely at the tile. It may not exactly match the one that you're trying trying to pair it with. Yeah, they don't straight up say don't use the default set, but they do heavily imply that the default set might be a little bit hard to parse for people.
1: Yeah, though I will say it is not the most difficult one to parse. I will say... Doing any of the playing card tile sets is almost completely unreadable to me. Like, it just looks like a mess of suits and numbers. I would say either go with the sports or the fantasy one or the vegetables. You know, something with, like, nice colorful pictures that are easier to decipher at this resolution. I struggle to find a reason for this existing even in its time and place. And now I think that's even more of an issue. So we got that Chess
0: Master down there at 104. You say Chess Master. I would actually go lower than that. I think the game I mentioned earlier, Clue, at 118, is where I would start trying to find a comparison point for this. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, that might not be a bad idea. Although I I think I might put this above Clue just because I think Clue... On the CNES messed with the basics of Clue in a way that makes it a worse game. Like, actively a worse game than just playing the board game Clue, where at least this isn't really any worse than
0: most other versions. It's just kind of unnecessary. I was thinking about kind of the comparison for, for Dragon's Eye here, which you're right, though, that... The rules of dragons I don't appear to have from what I can tell. It it seems like this is just a pretty straight straightforward version.
1: What about Wordtress at one fourteen?
0: Now that's interesting to me, because I feel like that maybe is is a better is, is is a good comparison here. Where it's a it's a game that like it's okay, but you can see just all the issues with the basic concept of it that get in the way of it. I think this game looks better than Wordtress. I can say that for it. Oh, yeah.
1: It's, it's definitely got a style that I think fits with the theme of what Shanghai 2 is going for way better than, you know, whatever WordPress was trying to do.
0: Um, it also has multiple modes, which Wordtress did not have. I don't know. I feel like Wordtress has to be a video game, whereas this just doesn't. Um, I mean, the
1: Dragon's Eye thing doesn't, but... I the mean, Dragon's
0: Eye doesn't. You're right. Shanghai actually kind of does because it would yeah. be so much trouble to set up. So, uh, you know, I think on balance, I would also probably rather play Mahjong Solitaire than Word Triss, I think.
1: I might push back on that a little bit, but I think I'm maybe like one of the few people that has maybe not disdain for what Shanghai Solitaire is, but I, I fundamentally think it's a flawed game. Um, in a way that I think a lot of people would disagree with me. I think most people probably think that game is fine, which is why it is so readily available. So I mean if if you think this one belongs above Word Tris, I am okay with that.
0: Yeah, I think it probably does, but I don't really know that I'd go that far up because it does still have all these problems that we've we've been talking about. I, I don't think it functions as well as Wheel of Fortune
1: does at 112, and I don't think it's got as strong visual component to it. As Bart's Nightmare does at 113. Honestly, I think it might go just right above where Trist. That's fine
0: with me. I think that's a good place for it. Alright, so congratulations, Shanghai 2. I um, guess there's games below it, certainly. It's not down down at the, the the bottom. It's just not really in a great place either. This is probably our
1: lowest ranked game in a while, actually. In fact, I think it's the lowest ranked one for this year so far. Not the best showing, Shanghai 2. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Well, I mean, not sorry. Do better next time. Do better game that came out 30 years ago. (laughs) All right. Well, folks, we only have one game left for this episode, and that game is Sim Earth SimEarth was developed by Maxis, who I'm pretty sure we talked about back in our SimCity episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, published by FCI. I will say I have probably talked way too much about Shanghai-related topics and about visual concepts to go too deep into FCI right now. But there is definitely a story there. It's just going to have to wait for another
0: episode. Yeah, no. This
1: is another Will Wright joint here. His his name is right in the opening scrawl there. Speaking of that little opening sequence, video games in general, just all of you. If you are going to have a back button.
0: Yes, I know.
1: Just a dedicated button that takes you back a screen. Do not take the player all the way back to the opening credits. Or at least if you do make those opening credits skippable okay can we all agree on that
0: uh, i can definitely agree on that because i had exactly the same problem that you did <laughs> where if you if you go into if you go forward from the title screen and then accidentally press the back button with This game's kind of strange key mappings. You do have to sit through all of the company logos, the opening credits, before you can go back in and and try to start the freaking game again.
1: So I guess we should talk about what this game is, if that's even something we can do (laughs) in a short amount of time.
0: Basically, what this game is, is it's kind of a biological terrarium, I guess. You know, it's, it's basically a thing where you are given a planet and you can adjust various values about the planet you know the the levels of the land what creatures grow on them what kind of biomes they have uh, and um you know adjust things like the the levels of various gases in the air and the the temperature and stuff and you're essentially trying to do all this to make life develop sustain itself and uh advance on this planet so That's sort of the overall idea. The way you do that is, I think, a little bit more hands-off and a little bit more esoteric than it may sound from that description, which is where this game is both kind of interesting and, I think, kind of hard to grapple with. I I had a couple of friends
1: back in the day when I was a kid who were really into SimCity. Never really appealed to me, but I enjoyed watching them play it because I thought it was kind of interesting. All the different components to this game, the little flourishes and Easter eggs here and there, I thought those were all cool. So, when one of my friends told me about Sim Earth, I immediately had this idea that oh, it's just Sim City except now you're building a city across an entire planet instead of just, you know, what you would normally think of as a city. But no, that isn't what this game is at all. You're cultivating life, basically. This is
0: basically a god sim. It is a god sim, yeah, in a pretty true sense of the word. I guess this game's main mode, you'd call it, is this thing called First Scenario, which essentially takes you through the various stages of development for an Earth-like planet. And you're given sort of goals that you have to meet for for how the organisms on the planet are going to develop that will take you through this scenario. So it starts out with a world that is totally covered with water. And it has life, but it's very basic life on it. And you're told that you need to raise land out of the water, allow some land-dwelling animals to exist, and then give them what they need to have to make fire. And, you know, that is pretty straightforward, but you're also just given sort of general tools in which to do that. It is like SimCity in the sense that you're using these various systems to make life better for for the, the things that are under your sort of control here. But also, it's it's extremely hands-off. I'm just going to be honest. I found it very hard to even get my head around how this game functions at first. And uh, both by reading the instruction manual and just by playing around with the game some, I think I got a, a pretty good handle on it. But it's still difficult to trust that I was doing the right things, I think, in in a lot of cases. I have really jumbled feelings about this game, I think. I like,
1: overall, what this game is trying to do. I think this is definitely... In the Koei sense, this is not really a game for me. But unlike in a lot of the Koei games, I can kind of get an idea of who this game is for. And I could much more easily recommend this one to those sorts of people. And I think I could find myself having some fun with this if I just sat down to play it. Because for one thing, I get the idea that I can only screw up so badly. Like, if I screw things up, there is a path. To undo a lot of that, for one thing, you can kind of just make things happen like with the water planet, I found myself just making a bunch of volcanoes, and by creating a bunch of volcanoes, I could then create a bunch of land masses. Now, this had the side effect of creating a lot of c o two in the air and heating the planet, maybe too much, but I could also just kind of start terraforming and creating like jungles and things like that that would help offset all of the c o two I think it 's really interesting what they 're doing here and I like that I always felt like I did have a path forward. It just wasn't always easy to see what that was. And sometimes, almost unintuitively, things were going better when things were going worse. If the planet is freezing, then the, the little help planet guy, the, the little guy who looks like a globe, is just going to tell me, hey, it's friggin' freezing here. Here's what you need to do. And he will give me explicit instructions on how to progress forward and fix it. And I was able to fix it pretty quickly. When things are going a little bit more smoothly, it's hard to know, like, okay, do I not do anything right now? Do I just let things sort of evolve naturally at this point because I've created an environment in which things are mostly going to go according to plan? Or do I need to intervene a little bit more? And the game doesn't always tell me that when when I'm in that scenario. And I wish that maybe there was, like, a deeper hint system where if I just say, you know, like, hey, give me – One specific thing I should probably do right now, because I'm not entirely sure if there's something I should be doing, you know, to to achieve my goals.
0: I appreciate the hint system that's there, and I actually appreciate it being a little bit more hands off, because I made a few attempts at playing this game, and I I did eventually do okay, but the first time I tried to play this game, beyond the time when I loaded it up, had absolutely no idea what the hell to do because I hadn't read the instruction manual and just turned it off again. The first real attempt I made at playing this game, I accidentally spent way too much of the resource that you have to spend to make things happen. And then didn't really have any anything I could do. And I do wish the game had sort of whacked me on the hand a little bit to, to keep me from doing that, at least at first. I know this is my fault for having done this, but uh, everything you do in this game does take energy. And the energy does replenish over time. But at first, you know, you have a pretty large supply of it to sort of get things going. And I spent it in the wrong ways. I spent it just raising land up out of the sea instead of on things like volcanoes, which would have had other knock-on effects. So eventually I had some land and I was able to put some creatures on it. But I couldn't really do anything beyond that. And I basically kind of just felt like I needed to start over, which admittedly wasn't that hard to do. But I do wish that there was maybe just like a proper tutorial mode for this game. Yeah, I
1: think maybe like a whole tutorial scenario would have been good. Like it's going to teach you the game and it's also going to show you how actions have consequences and, and consequences that you may not realize at first. There's always ways to balance the scales. It's just that there are like dozens and dozens of scales and it's not always obvious how adjusting one of them is going to affect all of the others which I I think is cool but yeah I I agree with you I wish there was a mode to onboard people who have never played a game like this before because this could have been more people's thing if some of us were introduced to this in a more gentle way um, or, you know, a more hand way at first. It's a shame sometimes when you see something like this that doesn't do that, and you really get a sense of like, oh, they probably missed out on a lot of potential players who could have been into this.
0: There were a f- uh, quite a few pieces of media around this time that were really trying to bring a lot of, like, the environmental concerns that were in the news uh, starting in, like, the early 90s, into pop culture and, you know, teach people, teach children, teach anybody, really, the way in which humans have a responsibility to think about their place in the environment. This is a better a better attempt at that than a lot of stuff that was pretty much just, yeah, here's a, a normal... You know, action platform game, but we're going to stop between the levels and lecture you about environmentalism. Like, I think a game that actually plays out the way in which various biological systems are connected to each other has a way better chance of actually teaching people something than like Awesome Possum or like Captain Planet, you know? I think it's a shame that like the front end of this is so unfriendly that a lot of people that could have really gotten the message from this game. Maybe just just didn't even understand what it was talking about.
1: But yeah, like this could have had such a a, a bigger impact on kids and, and made this sort of stuff resonate more than just the sort of moralizing of oh hey don't pollute by you know Captain Planet or whatever you know just wagging their finger at you like that just feels like arbitrary rules. This actually explains why the why we have those rules or why we should be making those rules why those are important. Yeah, it really is. I, I really am impressed with this game. I really think that they've done a great job of porting it to the SNES. I just wish there was just a little bit more... I mean, the home console market isn't the PC market. You know, the home console market is more into, like, you know, the, the easy to get into, pick up and play sort of stuff that, like, you know, the, the Mario Brothers of the world are and i feel like if they had come in with that mindset of trying to make this game approachable to those kinds of people sort of experience it could have bridged the gap between the 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 pc gamers and the console gamers and turned more console gamers into People who also like to play some stuff on PC as well. And I I really, really like this game. And because I really like this game, I'm also massively disappointed by the missed opportunity that it might have been.
0: I very much am on the same page with you there.
1: I guess we want to look over at the list. Yes, let's do it. I had a very specific spot in mind when I was thinking about this game earlier this week. And now that I'm looking at the list... We put two games in the opposite positions that I thought we had, and that completely throws everything off for me. So I had thought that we had put Populous above Drakken, and my thinking was, this is the game that's finally going to separate those two games. I completely forgot we put Drakken above Populous. That throws this entire metric completely off.
0: Do do you want to have a a brief conversation about whether or not those games should flip places?
1: Yes, I was going to suggest that maybe we do something we have never done before, which is to change the positions of games without any outside influence on that. I think eventually Draken may drop more than this, but that will have to be for another time. But yeah, I feel like we should swap Draken and Populous, and Populous becomes number 50 and Drakken becomes number 51. If you're okay with that,
0: I am okay with that, and I will say briefly the reason why I am so okay with that is because as we have gone further and further into the the act of creating this list, I have come to really appreciate um, coherency in a game design. In a way that I don't think I did necessarily earlier on, uh, when we were giving Drake, Drakken, uh, a lot of sort of credit for being different. Uh, I think that, you know, it is something to be different, but also... I think there are just parts of Drakken that don't really work together, whereas with Populous, uh, I do think that even though that game is like the one that we've been talking about today, kind of hard to come to grips with, I think once you do get that, it is it is a very cohesive game. Then we had the idea of essentially putting SimEarth, the living planet, uh, between those two games, Yes.
1: Or at least a good place to start, because I definitely think this game is, is far and away more a success at what it's trying to do on the Super Nintendo than Draken was. Um, I think Populous is maybe slightly better suited to the SNES because I don't think it's quite as complex as SimEarth. But at the same time, like I kind of appreciate what SimEarth is doing a little bit more. But I could also see myself getting back into Populous because I think I can grasp Populous a little bit better than I can SimEarth. So I'm a little torn on that. I don't know. What do you think about the matchup between Populous and Sim Earth?
0: So I think the design language that Populous uses, even though I remember us talking a lot about how it was kind of hard to figure out what to do in Populous, or how, how the different kind of menus in Populous worked, uh, I think that one thing that benefits Populous is that it is such a simple kind of elegant concept you know, it's literally raise the land, lower the land. In some ways, SimEarth is kind of taking that and, like, layering additional complications on it to make its point about the interconnectedness of ecosystems. They're very different games, and I think that in its way, Populous is much more like a proto-strategy game in some ways uh, versus versus the the more sort of literal god game game thing that you have going on in SimEarth where you're you're trying to kind of cultivate and improve the prospects of a society. I think in that way, SimEarth is probably a little bit messier, but I do really appreciate what it's doing. And I think it's very cool once you see all the pieces working together.
1: Here's another thing that just kind of popped in my head here. Is these are both god sims. In... Populous, I am a god whose interest is my chosen people have to dominate an, a, a space and completely wipe out other people, and in Sim Earth, I am a god that wants to bring balance to this planet and and make it thrive. I like playing that god a lot more than I like playing the 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 mean and. Sp- spiteful god of populace
0: yeah i agree
1: like from, just from a pure role-playing perspective i like sim earth a lot more <laughs> maybe like not a criteria that a lot of people would think about it at first you know because i mean there's always this you know like oh it's just a game what are you so worried about but i mean like it is a game yeah but like i'm still playing a role and I'm gonna enjoy a game more where I like the role that I am playing more than a, one where I'm
0: not. I, I appreciate the optimism behind SimEarth in a way that that makes it. I agree. Also makes it more appealing for me to play than Populous. Honestly, you know, having you having put that into focus, I I think that is enough, frankly, for me to put this. Above Populous on our on our ranking. Okay, do you think it goes
1: up any further than that? We've got Imperium at forty nine right
0: now. I don't know. I kind of like the idea of keeping these games together, just because they are so similar in some ways. Do you see? Do you see a ceiling that's further up than this? Because I think that once we get away from Populous, it's very hard to make direct comparisons until we probably get to something like SimCity. And I just don't think that as an overall package, this is nearly as as well designed and cohesive as a Super Nintendo game as SimCity is, so
1: I don't know. Maybe I would say like Super Double Dragon is the absolute ceiling for this because I, you know, I think that that game is it's your typical fun console brawler. You know, maybe Smash TV is another game that's sort of to some extent dragged kicking and screaming onto the Super NES. You know, it's not quite as suited for it, but it's maybe better suited than. Sim Earth is, but then maybe that makes what they did with Sim Earth, making it as playable as it is on the Synes, all the more impressive. I...
0: You know, you know what? Here's the thing I'll say: looking at this now, I do like this game more than Pushover. You know, that's another game that has some very confusing uh, design language that it's using, but I, I do think that for what it is, I I could see myself more easily going back to and digging further into this game than Pushover.
1: Maybe this goes between like Super Smash TV at forty seven and Pushover at forty eight. Yeah, that feels good to me.
0: Yeah. So congratulations,
1: Sim Earth, top fifty. Is that the highest ranked game of ninety three? It is. It
0: is indeed.
1: Yeah. We've we have covered today so far the lowest ranked and highest ranked games of nineteen ninety three thus far. Land of contrasts over here. Yeah, but you know, I I still feel like on the whole. 1993 is going all right.
0: I agree. We haven't seen you know, a glut of terrible licensed games so far. We have seen licensed games, but even the ones that are sort of failures have been interesting failures in general as some nice variety at this point. It's three more games
1: in the books. Well, I guess, you know, we, we already kind of hinted at it. So next time we're going to be talking hockey. There are three hockey games that came out in 1993, and we are just going to cover all of them. Uh, We're going to see how this whole Synescapade Sports Desk thing works. These are probably, depending on the amount of games that we have for any given sport, going to be shorter episodes than most. We're not going to go into a lot of deep history or even really a breakdown by each individual game necessarily. We're just going to kind of talk about them as a whole and and try and place them on the list because we are not sports people and we kind of just want to get them out of the way, frankly. So next time on the show for SNEScapades sports desk, we're going to be talking about hit the ice super slap shot and NHL 94, the the three hockey games for 1993. And, uh, and with that, I guess uh, it's, time to get
0: serious yeah uh it is so go, go ahead i'm sure you have something
1: yeah so by the time you're hearing this uh, an election has happened hopefully yeah um it is possible that we do not have all the results in just yet i am guessing this is going to be a pretty contested election so here's all i'm going to say for right now is if we do not yet know who the president is do not get discouraged um, there are probably going to be a lot of news outlets that want to sensationalize things. There are going to be news outlets who have a vested interest in making you feel disenfranchised and hopeless and that, you know, like the right has this one locked up when maybe they don't actually have that. So do not lose hope, regardless of the outcome. Do not lose hope is my message for you all right now. If things have gone in a in a good way, then we need to be taking to the streets to keep pushing to keep marching progress on because we have all had a very rough year, some of us more than others. It is, I mean, frankly, it's been a rough four years, but we need to be pushing forward, pushing the progressive agenda because Joe Biden is so much less than what we actually need to heal right now. And we need to keep pushing that forward. If things have not gone our way, then we may need to be marching for our very lives. But again, do not lose hope. This is what they want you to do. You know, if, if that is the case, and I am speaking to you from, you know, a, a point where I can still be kind of optimistic, I know it's going to sound like, oh, yeah, easy for you to say, uh, past Steampunk Link. And I get that. But don't give up. Is, is all I can say.
0: I, I think that in the best of possible scenarios, I I suspect that by the time you are hearing this, you know, the, the weekend after we record it, things are probably still really stressful and really, you know, kind of uh, taking a lot of everybody's energy to deal with day by day. So, you know, um, take care of yourselves. Try to treat yourself well during all this. And um, we're going to get
1: through it. Yeah. Thank you all for listening, Um, especially if you listened to all this just now. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I I hope that this this podcast finds all of you well. There will be a next time, I swear. Until then, I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero.
0: Play it loud.
1: Our intro-outro song is How Now, Brown Cow by TechnoAxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at TechnoAxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com. Video Game Historian on YouTube I think just this past week did a video about that Mega Man game on DOS and actually talked to the creator of that game and I don't want to say that we talked about something and made that happen on the greater interwebs but we uh, may or may not have rebooted Tiny Tunes
0: <laughs> I don't know I mean we just talked about that Tiny Tunes thing like a a week ago or two weeks ago or something, and then it just happened. So basically what I'm saying is I think we can bring back The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. if we just think hard enough.